You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth Chats. Today, I'm speaking with Noam Chomsky, the distinguished theoretical linguist, analytical philosopher, cognitive scientist, political critic, social activist, and public intellectual. Called the father of modern linguistics, Chomsky helped bring about the cognitive revolution in the human sciences. At 93, he is one of the most cited living scholars. He is Institute Professor Emeritus at MIT and Laureate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona. Closer to Truth is presenting this four-part mini-series with Professor Chomsky. Part one is Chomsky's intellectual history, the highlights, and his reflections. Noam, it's great to see you. We met briefly at MIT in 1979 or 1980, uh, and for more than 40 years, I've looked forward to this in-depth conversation. Very good to see you again. <laughs> so let's begin with what, what is your first recollection when you had this inner sense of the significance and the excitement of theoretical linguistics? You want to know the truth? <laughs> this is closer to truth. <laughs> okay. My first wife and I were graduate students. We were uh, on a taking the summer off to hike around Europe and Israel and do the things that graduate students do. And uh, we found the, this is 1953, we found naturally the cheapest ship that we could find that would go across the ocean, turned out to be a Canadian Pacific liner from Montreal. Uh, we were ready to go, but uh, the ship had a fire and burned up and couldn't do it. So they dredged something out of the Rotterdam Harbor that had been sunk during the Second World War, pumped out most of the water, got it to Montreal somehow. Uh, it went, but the boat listed. So if you looked out one side you saw the sky, the other side you saw the ocean, but it's okay. I got horribly seasick. And uh, while at one, during one bout of seasickness, I started thinking about a certain schizophrenia that I'd been living with. On the one hand, I'd taken for granted that the fundamental work in structural linguistics, especially that of Zillick Harris, my teacher who I worked with, I'd been working very hard trying to refine the techniques and fix them up and so on. On the other hand, I was working on a kind of hobby, personal hobby of my own, undergraduate thesis, been working on it, essentially generative grammar. And uh, I got the sudden realization that the work in generative grammar was actually getting somewhere and that the other work was a kind of a dead end. Mm. And I just went on from there. <laughs> so it was the, a more expensive liner probably would have never. <laughs> the listing and the nausea uh, has led to this gigantic revolution in the world. I mean, there's a, 
there's a big message in that about uh, humanity, I think. Your undergraduate thesis was on the, the, the morphophenomics of modern Hebrew. What, what was that? That was the title, but it was basically an exercise in trying to work out principles of simplicity and explanation in linguistic theory using this particular set of data and information which was at hand. I knew the language moderately well, but the data were clear and fairly complex. So the, it was actually an effort to work out some of Nelson Goodman's ideas on simplicity of theory. He was a, I was studying with him at the University of Pennsylvania. He was uh, doing very important work in this area. So it was a kind of convergence of an interest in language, an interest in foundations of science as viewed through a philosophical perspective. And this was an exercise in working them out. Basically was what later became the basis for generative grammar. The first major event which kind of exploded on the world was your book, uh, Syntactic Structures, published in 1957. What was the transition? How did you get to that book? Uh, and what were the ideas in it that were that became so revolutionary? The book was actually course notes for an undergraduate course that I was teaching at MIT, uh, the Cornelis von Schoenfeld uh, linguist who was a representative for the Mouton publishers visited MIT, I, a friend, he saw the notes in my desk and asked if I could write them up for a monograph, so I did. There was a much more extensive book about seven or 800 pages, just mimeographed, uh, Logical Structure of Linguistic Theory, which had been finished in 1955, this was sort of drawn from it, simplified version with more mathematical material to appeal to the MIT undergraduates and introduce them into these areas. Uh, but, the, but the basic work was done early 50s, mid 50s, and uh, developed from what I just mentioned. Actually, the, uh, the, mono, the uh, work you mentioned, the morphonemics, uh, was really the basis of it that later appeared in a 1979 in a retrospective uh, series. None of this could be published at the time. It had no connection with the uh, anything going on in the field. We'll be talking a lot about universal grammar, but what I want to un uh, understand in this part is where did that come in um, in terms of this timeline you're presenting uh, in terms of your undergraduate thesis, uh, the 1955 major uh, opus, uh, the seven, 800 pages, and then the 1957 books, Syntactic Structures. Where did universal grammar begin to come into the thinking? Well, universal grammar is a traditional term, but it's been reinterpreted in a new framework in the framework of that was developed in the 1950s. It became understood as uh, the theory of the genetic basis for the language faculty. Humans have a shared language faculty. 
all humans, as far as we know, have essentially the same faculty of language. And it has a basis in our biological nature, ultimately genetic. And the theory of what the nature of this system is, is what has come to be called universal grammar. There's some similarity to the traditional notion. The traditional notion was trying to find universal principles that would hold of all languages, kind of generalizations about the nature of language. This is a little different. This is a question of what are the fundamental principles innate, built in, that enable an infant to very quickly acquire command of a language uh, with very sparse evidence, as we now know, and uh, for people like you and me to do what we're now doing, to make use of the system that's acquired very early in life, almost reflexively, very little data, just the outgrowth of an internal system, which is called universal grammar, the faculty of language. Every language is one or another instantiation of it. It was thought back in the 1950s that languages could just vary very widely, almost without limit. It's now known that the limits are very narrow and the differences are pretty much superficial. Mm. The languages are all cast to the same mold, essentially. Incidentally, similar developments took place in biology. So if you go back to the 1950s, biologists assumed that organisms could vary almost without limit, and each one had to be studied on its own. Last couple of decades, it's been learned that there's deep conservation, fundamental principles remain, laws of form constrain the possible organisms, so extreme that uh, some serious uh, molecular biologists have suggested that there might even be a universal genome with minor modifications for the different organisms. Not shown, but taken seriously. Certainly the implications uh, for universal grammar that unifies all languages at their most fundamental level and the differences are superficial is a, <clears throat> not only radical for languages, but it has deeper implications for humanity. It does. It means we're basically deep level, all pretty much the same. Actually, the late Richard Lewontin, great evolutionary biologist, uh, pointed out years ago that there's far more diversity within any group of humans that you identify than across the human species. And he even quipped once, semi-joke, that if you look at two squirrels in a tree outside your window, chances are that they have more genetic diversity than all humans. <laughs> and it's not too, that was a joke. It isn't surprising. Humans are a very recent uh, uh, creature. We emerged two to 300,000 years ago, which is a, a kind of a eye blink in evolutionary time, it's almost nothing. And uh, humans, we now have genomic evidence that humans began to separate on the order of uh, 150,000 years ago. 
uh, all with the same capacities. So these capacities must have developed very quickly in a very brief period of time. And it's not surprising that we're all basically identical. Yeah, I want to spend a lot of time on that later. Right now, I'm, I want to kind of go along your intellectual development. So after the book in 1957, the, the next major event, at least in terms of the public persona of what you've, uh, of what you've contributed, was your 1959 review of Skinner's book, Verbal Behavior, which you uh, took it to task and took, in fact, behaviorism in general to task with that book. Uh, your review is somewhat controversial, but I think the large majority recognized that that was a, a major event in, in the whole field, not just of language, but of psychology in general. That was all basically at the same time that review actually went to press also in 1957. The reigning doctrines in Cambridge, Mass., which was the center of much of this work. Uh, the reigning doctrines were radical behaviorism. Uh, Skinner's William James lectures had appeared, had been circulated in the late 40s. They finally were published later. That's the book, Verbal Behavior. That was taken as dogma. The uh, structural linguistics was the basic theory of language. Uh, there were a few of us, actually three graduate students. Eric Lenneberg went on to found Biology of Language. Morris Halley, my close friend and colleague, who probably also met at MIT 40 years ago. Uh, the three of us were grad students. We just didn't believe any of it, starting in the early 50s and worked together to try to develop a very different position, which actually had a somewhat traditional cast, things that had been forgotten. And uh, syntactic structures and the review of verbal behavior were two emanations of this joint work trying to reconstruct. That review ma made some people angry. <laughs> that review made some people angry. Oh yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> But I've been making people angry all my life. <laughs> Closer to Truth does not deal with politics, although you're free to add whatever is relevant in your intellectual development. Uh, the, the next date that I looked at was it was a, um, your, your debate with uh, Michel uh, uh, Foucault, um, which has been sort of uh, uh, canonized as this great confrontation between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. Uh, was it that significant? Not to me. <laughs> it was an interesting, I'll tell you a little bit of the background. The debate, so-called, was organized by Fonce Elders, a Dutch anarchist, and uh, the two of us, Foucault and I, spent the afternoon before the debate together, we're just walking around the Dutch countryside, country house that he had, mainly for partly for fun, just to talk to each other, but partly to see if we could get by with him talking French and me talking English. I don't know any French, <laughs> so much English, but we wanted to see if we could get by without a translator. So we got by with, we figured we could manage, so we 
had the discussion without a translator, but uh, people can have their own views. I didn't regard it as very significant, I must say. I, I would think the, the, the metaphor of uh, a, a Frenchman and, a, and an English speaker uh, talking about analytic versus continental philosopher philosophy without a translator it is a very apt metaphor for the way the the two uh, the two schools have uh, have interacted over the years. So uh, I think there's a deep significance in that in that uh, in that metaphor. <laughs> I didn't see it as a conflict between two schools of philosophy. There were things that we disagreed about, but they were substantive, substantive and moral disagreements, not philosophical ones. So one substantive disagreement was about the about what's called human nature. Is there a fundamental human nature? Uh, and so far as I can understand his view, he's questioning that. To me, that's simply incoherent. If there's no human nature, we're just formless amoebas who can be shaped in any way, in some random way, by uh, environmental factors. That's obviously not true of humans. We have very specific characteristics. Uh, language, thought, the nature of thought are highly constrained. That's the core of our nature. And the same is true in the social and political arena. We're not just creatures who can be buffeted around in any possible nature. The other was moral. Uh, to me, at least, he seemed totally amoral, not immoral, amoral. It just didn't matter what outcomes were as long as certain power interests were reflected properly. He said he's on the side of the, in those days, this is 1973, he was on the side of the proletariat, whatever that means, and whatever was good for them was fine. Didn't matter what the consequences were. At least that's how I understood him. To me, that's a totally amoral position. But I didn't think there were philosophical differences, substantive and moral differences. So over the decades between then and, and, and recent decades, the phrase linguistic wars has been used to describe some of the activity, and uh, to the degree there were linguistic wars, I think you were the center of it. <laughs> Actually, I was the periphery of it. If you look closely, I didn't even participate. Now, this is all, in my view, sort of adolescent hysteria. <laughs> there were disagreements. I barely took part in them. Some of the other participants thought they were a war, but not me. Uh, in fact, if you look closely, my participation in the war was to write a couple of letters to former students uh, discussing at length why I thought that they were proceeding in an incorrect direction. I think I had one article in which I discussed some of the differences, but these are not wars. These are discussions that take place among, within a scientific discipline on uh, disagreements about how uh, the system should be designed and developed. The wars ended, so the so-called wars, when the uh, fighting position that was advocated basically collapsed under its own weight. 
there were the wars were just to sell books. You know, <laughs> over the years, you've debated with um, many philosophers, in addition to uh, uh, Foucault, uh, Saul Kripke, Tom Nagel, Hilary Putnam, Quine, John Searle. What, what what kind of general reflections do you have about those discussions with eminent uh, philosophers? Some of them were serious and substantive, uh, with Quine, for example, as leading modern philosopher. As far as I could tell, those discussions ended with a important paper of his, 1969, at a symposium New York University on language and mind. Uh, we both were participants. Uh, I've reviewed this in my book, Reflections on Language. You can find the details there. But in the paper that he gave in the course of the discussion, he said something which I thought was extremely significant. He said, we must accept whatever innate principles that are that carry the individual from over the hump from data to knowledge attained to what he called analytical hypotheses. As far as I can see, his entire conception collapses with that. That means if the innate principles are known, they can be, they're part of science, part of what he called physics, if they are what carry us over the hump to the knowledge that we attained, then the knowledge that we attained is also known part of the sciences, then there's no more uh, uh, indeterminacy of translation, no more inscrutability of reference, it all disappears. Quite interestingly, this article has disappeared from the philosophical canon there's huge literature on Quine, naturally, is a major figure. You'll never find a reference to this, which seems to me pretty interesting. Hmm. Not uncharacteristic of the rather parochial character of philosophy. As we discussed before our discussion, Closer to Truth does not deal with politics. Uh, we deal with cosmology and physics and biology and consciousness, brain, mind, uh, philosophy of religion. But I want to give, in, in understanding your intellectual history, I have one question about politics. Is there a connection between your way of thinking in political theory and political activism with the work that you've done in linguistics? Or are they just two separate elements of your remarkable personality? Uh, or is there some, pardon the expression, deep structure that connects them? The first time I was, uh, I've been asked this question for 70 years. The first <laughs> time I agreed to answer it was in a philosophy journal in 1970. I was asked to write an article on language and freedom in which I would connect these two things. And I started the article by saying, have some things to say about language, uh, have some things to say about freedom, but I'm puzzled by the world and <laughs> they have to do with each other. <laughs> went on with that. There's no logical connection. A person can 
agree with me completely on language, disagree completely on politics, perfectly consistent, and conversely. <laughs> there is a thin connection, abstract connection, not a logical connection. Uh, the fundamental character of language, which was actually recognized in the early scientific revolution in a lucid way by Galileo, Arnaud, a few others, uh, they were struck by, amazed in fact, by what they regarded properly as a remarkable property of human beings, namely with a small number of symbols we can construct in our minds infinitely many thoughts and can even find ways to convey to others who have no access to our minds all of the innermost workings of our minds. They regarded this as miraculous. That's the essence of language. That's the basis for part of the basis for Descartes' postulation of res cogitants, uh, second substance, uh, beyond machines, beyond matter, to account for this basically creative activity. Same thought was repeated by Frege a couple centuries later, essentially the same point. Well, there's an, that concept of an internal capacity to act freely and creatively was extended in, in, interestingly during the Enlightenment and Romantic period by Wilhelm von Humboldt and others to lay the basis of a conception of human society uh, on the basis of the assumption that any infringement on human freedom and the human capacity to develop the person's own resources, capacities, freely, without constraint. Any such infringement is uh, illegitimate. So out of that, you can spin a certain conception of, in his case, classical liberalism uh, on to further developments. So there is that kind of very abstract connection. But as I say, it's not a logical connection. Look, I, I appreciate that very much. I'm not going to get into politics. That's not closer to truth. But I, I have to say that uh, I am a supporter of your view of uh, unconditional freedom of speech is most important. And uh, I, uh, I appreciate your, uh, uh, your leadership in, in that area. Next, in part two of Closer to Truth's four-part interview of Professor Noam Chomsky, we'll discuss his paradigm-shifting theories of linguistics. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.